Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Exodus chapter 20. It's a great privilege to be able to preach here this morning, and I appreciate it. I want to speak about something that I deal with quite often Uh, in counseling and in discipling men, and that is addictions. Addictions have become a defining characteristic in our culture. It seems uh, that people can get addicted to anything. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, gambling, work, sex, exercise, the internet, Cell phones, food, shopping, anger, money, sleep, depression, (laughs) approval, just to name a few. (laughs) We go on from there, we'd be here all morning. And a case really could be made, and I actually hope to make it this morning, that we're all addicts. And that we all have addictive personalities. And, uh, you know, we understand drug and alcohol addiction, uh, but the truth of the matter is uh, addictions are rampant in most men's lives. And if you've ever dealt with an alcoholic or a drug addict, one of the hardest things to do is to get them to admit that they have a serious problem. So this morning probably isn't going to be very comfortable Interventions never are. But by the grace of God, and with some hard honesty this morning, we can get delivered. Amen. And that's my hope this morning. So let's just read uh, Exodus 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray it will grip us, it will lay hold of us in our hearts, and it will, in fact, create the deliverance that we're desperate for. I pray that your spirit have right of way. We open our hearts to your conviction. Give us ears to hear and willing hearts to deal with the issues. I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said that. For our purposes today, I would define addiction as any redundant, godless behavior that we fall into habitually. It's an enslavement that seems to have power over our will. Our best efforts at reformation are short-lived and ineffective, 
And these things resist our most sincere resolutions and our most adamant vows. These are things down deep that are constantly at war with our consecration. Gerald May wrote in his book, Addiction and Grace, addiction sidetracks and eclipses our deepest, truest desire. So our deepest, truest desire as Christians is to serve the Lord and to please him in all of our ways. And there are things in our lives that again and again sidetrack that decision and overwhelm and eclipse that consecration. He goes on and says, the presence of addiction should be suspected whenever interior human freedom is compromised. In other words, whenever it feels like I I just don't seem to be able to make the right choice, then the first suspect is you're addicted to something. Something is pulling you away from what is good. Romans 7.15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Again in verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. That sounds like every addict I've ever counseled. But it's Paul. From prescription pills to porno to lying to spousal abuse to the emotional basket cases that are so prevalent today, people fall prey to their mixed motives and uh, their addictive cycles. And with our mouth and with our minds, we say, I want to do what is right. I want to serve God. I want to make the right call. Uh, I want to walk close to God, but all too often there are things that we put before him and above him, and those are our addictions. How many times have you found yourself succumbing to redundant behavior when you know it's wrong? I mean, your mind is screaming at you, don't! How many times have you dealt with a a character issue and you thought that you faced it down? The pride, the insecurity, the fear, the dishonesty, the procrastination, the seething anger. And you think you've dealt it the death blow. That's it. I've put a nail through its heart only to see it resurrect. And it's back again in a week or a month or 30 minutes, or 10 seconds. (laughs) How many times have you given yourself to a fit of road rage? And then the Holy Ghost conviction says, I can't believe those words would come out of a Christian mouth. (laughs) Yeah, I got to get that under control. I really got to get, you stupid! For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Isn't that the universal cry of addiction? And I'm not talking about a one-off. I'm not talking about slipsies. I'm talking about 
a major piece of our character that resurfaces again and again. Who we are when we face ourselves honestly. We find these little pockets of spiritual resistance and ongoing godless behavior. And in one sense, we could just say, well, we're just talking about sin. And we're talking about the sin nature. And that's true enough, but I think that when we say that, it diminishes the problem. Oh, it's just sin. It theologizes the problem. It generalizes it. It randomizes it. Well, these are just the random failures in an otherwise godly life. But what it really does is it refuses to look at the habitual nature and the ongoing practice of our addiction. And in truth, I believe that it, uh, it, it actually aids and abets the problem. It's one thing to say, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And when we say that, it almost ennobles us. Well, you know what? At least I'm humble. I admit that I'm a sinner. And we can pretend that we're facing the problem when in all actuality we're dismissing it. Well, I'm just a sinner. I can't control it. I, it just, it's my fallen nature. And you see, when we do that, we surrender to it, just like every addict. I'm just an alcoholic. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, I, it's just my problem. It's one thing to say I'm a sinner. It's another thing to say I'm addicted to my sinful behavior. I'm an addict. I've tried to change it, but I can't. Now it's no longer hiding under the blood. Now it's in your face. Now we have to face the real problem. But see, whenever we, we go there, we begin to act just like junkies. And we begin to make excuses. And we begin to say, well, it's not that bad. And the truth of the matter is, just like any addiction, it escalates. Amen. When uh, people drink, they, one drink is never enough. It escalates. It goes on and on. Uh, gambling, uh, porno, whatever it is, there's always this pushing, demanding element to it. We say, if I could just make $5,000 more a year, I'd be in good shape. And then you start making $5,000 more a year, and now you need $10,000 more a year. Amen. Because it's escalating. Isn't that an addiction to materialism, consumption, and spending? Because it doesn't matter how much you bring it in, it's all going out. You notice that as you give vent to your anger, it gets easier and easier. And it doesn't stay focused on one issue. You started out angry at the job, but now you're angry at your wife and your kids and your pastor and everybody else. Because it escalates, just like any addiction. What you've accomplished is never enough because you need more props. You need more recognition. You need more adulation. Did you ever play Risk with someone who has to win? <laughs> They're addicted to winning. Dude, it's just a game. No, it's not! The fate of the world hangs in the balance. No, your ego is hanging in the balance. 
But the problem is your entire sense of well-being is rooted in an addiction. I have to have this. And if I don't win, I go into withdrawal. And I pout for days and weeks and months because I didn't win. I would call that an addiction. And then we start making the excuses. No, it's not. It's not an addiction. It's not like I do it all the time. Yes, you do. You do it all the time. Oh, no, I don't. The denial. It's not really who I am. Your wife constantly points out your addictions. Oh, that's not true. Sound just like a drunk. Oh, that's not true. I don't, I don't really drink that much. I, I don't know why I'm gaining weight. I don't eat that much. At least no more than usual. Could it be an addiction? I'm really a humble guy. In fact, I don't think there's anyone who's more humble than me. I'm, I am the absolute best at being humble. When you look in the dictionary for humble, you see my humble face smiling back at you in all humility. I'm really a good guy most of the time. Jesus is Lord except when he's not. There's always that thing that keeps aborting our genuine consecration. And we hold to the facade of spirituality, but under it is this, this thing that keeps cutting you off at the knees. Then it's the blame game, because all addicts blame everyone but themselves. I only hit her when she makes me mad. I'm stressed. Show me anyone in the world who is not stressed. Stress is a myth, but that's a whole other sermon. I'm not responsible. It's a disease. Adam passed it on to me. (laughs) Don't you hate to hear about slavery in the 20th century? Oh, you know, it's because we were slaves. You've never been a slave. The devil made me do it. It's the curse of generations. I'm Irish. There may be some legitimacy to that one. I'm Mexican. La Raza. It's, you know, it's, it's just the way we do it, man. I was raised in the ghetto. God doesn't help me. This is the language of an addict. This is the way addicts think. And when we look at the self-destructive types of addiction, I mean the real obvious ones, the meth freaks and the drunks, 
We always ask, why can't you see what you're doing to yourself and to everyone around you? Why can't you see that? But in much less dramatic ways, we're all doing the same thing. Our anger is messing with our health. It's killing you. And as are many other addictions. Our pride is derailing our relationships with God and with people, our friends. As are many other addictions. Our 60-hour work week in the pursuit of the almighty dollar is messing with our families. It's hurting them. You're not doing it for them. And so here we are, and we're guilty of behavior that we continue in, and it is destructive on many levels, but we never think of ourselves as addicts because most addicts never think of themselves as addicts until there's no denying it, and then they wear it as a badge. And so as you read all the various literature on addiction, you'll find all kinds of discussions about addiction as disease, or addiction is genetic, or it's neurological, or it's environmental. And the problem is we've heard this so much that it's crept into our thinking, and we have come to accept addiction as a part of life. And we've come to say, yeah, that's, that is the way it is. And the problem with all these different models is that they're all rooted in victimology. And none of these models have ever done anything to help set an addict free. The truth of the matter is they contribute to the addiction because they hand them the get-out-of-jail card. Well, this is why you have your problem, and it's always going to be a problem, and, and it's just in your genes, it's part of who you are, blah, blah, blah. But if you really want to get to the root of addiction and what the problem is, then you turn to the Bible, and there is a word for addiction found throughout its pages, almost on every page. It's called idolatry. It's anything that we put above and before God. You know what God's will is. You do something other than that. You have just exalted that to the place of God in your life. Author Edward Welch, in his book, Addiction, A Banquet in the Grave, writes, addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. Will we worship ourselves and our own desires, or will we worship the true God? Christian philosopher Paul Tillich said uh, that whatever we are ultimately concerned with is God for us. Whatever we are ultimately concerned with. So once you cut through all the, all the verbiage and you get down to what you give yourself to, that's what's ultimately important to us. Anything that usurps God's throne and sets itself up as God is an idol. My pleasure, my power, my pride, my money, anything that I put before God becomes my God. Paul says in Colossians 3, covetousness, which is idolatry. A covetousness is a perception. It's a desire. It's the valuing of money above all else. It's the value of things above all else. And Paul calls it idolatry. There's no stone image. There's no idol. It's an idol of the heart. It's an idol of the mind. It's an attitude. It's an affection. 
that comes before anything else, and therefore Paul calls it idolatry. And we would not be wrong to call anything that pushes God off the throne in our life an idol. Job 31, 25 to 26 in the New Living Translation says, I have put my trust in money, or have I put my trust in money, or felt secure because of my gold? Have I gloated about my wealth and all that I own? Have I looked at the sun shining in the skies, or the moon walking down its silver pathway, and been secretly enticed in my heart to throw kisses at them in worship? If so, I should be punished by the judges, for it would mean I had denied the God of heaven. So here is Job seamlessly joining sun and moon worship, prevalent in his day, something you and I would instantly recognize as pagan idolatry, and he joins that to gloating over his wealth or taking his security in his 401k or in his savings, finding my security. He says, if I did that, I would be denying God, and it would be the same thing as if, as if I was a moon worshiper or a sun worshiper. We're talking about an inner attitude, an infection. We're talking about something that many of you live with on a daily basis and say, no, that's just the reward for my industry. But it's an idol, scripturally. Ezekiel 14, 1 to 3, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired at all of them? God says to Ezekiel, the problem is these men have affections, they hold to behaviors, they hold to attitudes in their hearts. They have idols in their hearts that cause them to stumble into iniquity. These attitudes, these affections that we hold to, that's where our sin comes from. That's what generates our sin. We have something that we love more than we love God. And, and it alienates us from God. It causes a serious problem between us and God. God says, should I let them inquire of me at all? And we know, you know full well, that as you give yourself to that behavior or those behaviors that constantly keep cropping up in your Christian walk, you feel that alienation. You feel that separation. Hang with it long enough, it will cause you to call your salvation into question. Because the real issue is there's a breakdown in your worship of true God. It's interesting to me that the first commandment, the one that we're looking at this morning, addresses this very issue. You will have no God before me. There is nothing in your life that should take precedent over me and my will. That's what God says. God says nothing in your life should be above me or my will. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? The first and greatest commandment is that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. If we truly lived that, there would be no room in our heart for idolatry. 
There would be no room in our heart for sin. We wouldn't constantly be going, oops, oh, did it again. Oops, sorry, oops, sorry, oops, sorry. Well, the reason why we're sorry all the time is because we're just like an addict who can't cut his mistress loose. Oh, sorry, honey, I really love you. And the undeniable truth is that all the things that hold us in bondage are affections. They are things that we embrace. We love our addictions like the Ephesians loved Diana. We will riot over them. That's how they got to, pl- to the place they are in our lives, this mad dominance where we bow before them. Listen to Jeremiah 2, 25. But you said, he's speaking to a bunch of idolatrous Jews, but you said it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. That's the nature of addiction. That's the nature of idolatry. And the most ubiquitous sin in the Bible is idolatry. The people of God lived an endless cycle of of worshiping the true God, falling into idolatry, experiencing God's judgment, repenting, worshiping the true God, falling into idolatry, experiencing judgment, repenting, worshiping the true God. That's the history of God's people. And I dare say for most of us, it's our own history. In one or many areas, probably multiple areas of our lives. Gerald May writes, however short-lived or minor our concern for something other than God may be, when we give it more priority than we give our concern for God and God's will, we commit idolatry. Thus, we all commit idolatry countless times every day. Now, that may be a bit overwrought. But in principle, it touches a truth. Because it cannot be argued that those addictions, those idols that are entrenched in our mind and in our character and in our behavior are given priority over our concern for God and his will. And we love them dearly. You know, a junkie will go down in flames screaming his love for his family. I love my kids. I love my wife. I mean, I hear it all the time, but everybody knows that's a mind game. And your wife and your kids know that you love your drugs more than you love them. There's no debate. There's no argument. You'll thump your chest. You'll scream about it. But the truth of the matter is we all know who who you love. One of the most revealing statements in Scripture is 2 Chronicles 33, 17. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places. Okay? Idolatry. Still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Did you ever read that and go, what? They still sacrificed in their high places and they cloaked it in a veneer of Christianity. Oh, I only offer to God. I only love God. One of the most significant hallmarks of addiction is the exquisite inventiveness of our mind to play games with that addiction, 
to say, oh, I don't really have a problem. No, it's really, I'm really, really sold out to God. While we're clicking on the website. Now for the good news. The wonderful, glorious message of our text is the absolute truth that God is God and nothing else is. Everything else is a false God. That means that the idols of our hearts, the addictions that we have chosen and feel have taken over in our life can be torn down and defeated because they are not God. They don't have the power. You think they have the power. You've ceded power to them, but in fact, they are not irresistible. They are not sovereign. They rule nothing. The idols that you bow down to are nothing. Dagon lying on his face in his own temple with his head cut off and his hands cut off is the ultimate message to every addict. Behold your God. Look at the chump. He's nothing. He couldn't even stand up. Can't keep his head. That's this thing that is all-powerful in your life. Get it even close to the presence of God and it's done. Get it even close to the ark of God. Boom, it's down, it's out, the fight's over. I love God's take on idols. Isaiah 44, listen to this, this is just great. He's talking about a man who makes an idol. He cuts down cedars for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it, which is just a little, just a little smack at it. How does this thing grow without God? Where does the rain come from? Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed... He makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. He burns half of it in the fireplace and the other half he says, deliver me. It's the same tree. God says, that's your God? That's the best you can come up with? That's the power of your God? God exposes idolatry and therefore addiction as the absurdity that it is. You make an idol out of the wood and you burn it. What kind of God is that? Listen to me. None of your gods have the power to help you. None of them have the power to change your life. They can't make you happy. 
Ask any junkie if he's happy. Ask any alcoholic if he's happy. Ask any porn-bound pervert, any homosexual. I, I knew a homosexual years ago. This is way, 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 way back. And he said to me, don't ever let them tell you that they're gay. He said, there's no more miserable people on the planet. We are not gay. Your idols don't have the power to help you, and you know it. Your Oxycontin doesn't help you. Your porno doesn't help you. Your basketball victories. <laughs> your illusions of control. Your piles of money. They're just so many logs for the fire. They're not going to do anything for you in the end. They cannot help you. They don't make you a better person. They don't change your life. They are a lie. This will make you happy. If you just vent, if you just scream, if you just give yourself to those emotions, you'll feel much better. No, you won't. You'll feel like the uncontrolled child that you are. They won't help you. Your addictions, your idols can do nothing for you. Now listen to me. Here's the, here's the absolute revelation that will set you free. If they can do nothing for you, then they can do nothing to you. These things that are all powerful in your life, they don't have the power to blow the fuzz off of rubber monkey, as a, a departed friend once used to say. Listen to Jeremiah 10.5. Their, idol, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. I do not subscribe to the philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a porn freak, always a porn freak. Once a guy who can't control his temper, always a man who can't control his temper. Once a man bound by materialism and selfishness, always a man bound by materialism and selfishness. I don't believe that. It's a lie from hell. Those addictions don't have that kind of power. You think they've got that kind of power. I can't be happy if I don't have more. I can't be happy if I don't please this, if I don't scratch this. Man, I can't live without my drug. I can't live without this. It's a lie. Your life would be 100% more abundant without this. Whatever your addiction, whatever your repeat godless behavior may be, you are losing that part of God in your life. And therefore, you are losing something of incredible worth for something that has no worth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone's, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You don't have to go on living in the same crap you've been living in all your life. It's not necessary. Paul writes those desperate words. I don't get it. I want to do right, I don't do right. I don't even know how to do right. Well, he answers his dilemma at the end of the chapter. I find then a law that is evil, a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law 
of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, if that was the end of it, we could all go home and slash our wrists. We could all go home and just shoot up. End our pain. No hope. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Read on. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our text says, I am the Lord God who brought you out. Brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. The house of bondage. Egypt was the land of slavery, and it was equally the land of idolatry. And the two were profoundly intertwined, and God says, I have brought you out. The answer to your problem, the key to your deliverance, is in the commandment. I am God. Have no gods before me. I am God. I will set you free. You don't have to stay in Egypt one more day. Joshua, on the border of the promise, speaks to Israel and says, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell or make up your own gods. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. And in that statement is his deliverance from Egypt into the promise. Say, how can I be a fully consecrated man? As for me and my house, we're living for God right there. That's your deliverance. That's where it kicks in. Your choice is the agency of your deliverance. And the Holy Spirit is the empowerment of your choice. I make a choice. God steps into the temple, knocks Dagon on his face, and says, there, you're free. Walk in liberty. Walk in deliverance. And no one can challenge God. There's no addiction that can say, you're not God. I'm God here. I'm in control. God says, You're not God. You're not even close to God. You're a punk. You strut around like you're something. You're nothing. Watch what I do to God. God's just, just like that. That's how God deals with addiction. That's how God deals with your bondage. I am the Lord your God. No one can challenge that. Nothing. No drug. Meth can't say, oh, no. Porno can't say, oh, no, I'm God. You're nothing. 
Half of you is good for burning. In fact, if it's porno, all of it's good for burning. <laughs> Throw your computer in the fire. See, no God that you have set up can thwart God. That's all there is to it. Idols have no power. Addiction has no power. All you got to do is say, no, you know what? I've made my choice. I'm living for God. Right there. You're free. Right there. Right there. It's broken. Oh, I know. You know, your little God's still off in the corner going, come here. You know, he recedes, doesn't he? The, lo- the longer you, sh- you live for God, the more he just recedes until he finally just walks off the together. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vvph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? please visit our website at vbph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.